back to throw, looking. Deep pattern, downfield, touchdown Miami! What a throw, Devontae Parker! Holy smokes, what a drive! What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? It is Friday. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, we're going to take a closer look at the flexibility and the multiple fronts in Miami's defensive arsenal after free agency is basically a wrap, and we're heading to Gainesville and Baton Rouge to cover the LSU and Florida Pro Days as Kyle Pitts and Jamar Chase both put on an absolute show. All of that and more on this Friday, April the 2nd edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And so some news came across the wire earlier this week. The NFL has approved the 17-game schedule for the 2021 season and beyond. And so your Miami Dolphins are going to be hosting the New York Giants for their 17th game this season. The AFC East will play the NFC East. So we're going to get the Buffalo Bills. All of the AFC teams are going to host the NFC team. So Buffalo Bills will get Washington. The Patriots get the Cowboys and the Jets get the Eagles in those matchups. Taking a look at what all this means, three preseason games now. The NFL will reduce that. I'm curious to see what this does to NFL records as far as yardage and completions and touchdowns and all that fun stuff. I think it probably won't start to take a a major impact on career numbers for a long time, but single season marks are certainly in jeopardy now, especially with the expansion of the offensive, just overall firepower and the way the rules are geared towards more offensive football in today's National Football League. But taking a look at this, I like it because I like more football, you know, less preseason football and more actual in-season football. I like it because we get more unique matchups. I've always kind of not liked the idea that you can only come to an NFC town if you're an AFC team every eight years, especially being a Dolphins fan in the Northwest my entire life. So I like that element. For instance, Packers and Chiefs this year. Are you kidding me? Who doesn't want to watch that on a Monday night primetime slot? Seahawks and Steelers, that's a cool-looking matchup. So plenty of fun stuff to look at here with the new 17-game NFL schedule. The expansion became official earlier this week. Dolphins will host the Giants with that 17th game. I want to cover the... LSU and Florida Pro Days from earlier in the week. We'll go ahead and circle back on that. But I want to get to something that sparked my interest as I was re-watching another Dolphins game, as I am wont to do. It was the San Francisco game. And first off, just how much fun was that game in general as a fan? 43-17, to an instant three and out on the opening possession, a touchdown to respond to that, and then a quick touchdown again after that. As Miami built up the 14-0 lead and cruised to victory after 21-7, it never became less than a two-score game again in that first half. And some of the individual matchups in that game, I mean, Eric Rowe on George Kittle. We talk about the Travis Kelsey and Darren Waller performances this year. Well, how about Eric Rowe on George Kittle in this game? He was spectacular. Robert Hunt on Eric Armstead had a great game in his first start at right tackle. That was the start of what I thought was a very good rookie season for Robert Hunt. The offense relentlessly going after that Brian Allen matchup with either Preston Williams or Devontae Parker over and over again. Andrew Van Ginkle showing his ability to dip and bend the corner as a pass rush. That was the first game Shaq Lawson missed. Van Ginkle got an elevation in snap counts, and man, he played a heck of a game, had a big strip sack in that game. And Emmanuel Ogba, he kind of took off a couple weeks before this, but he continued his pace where he just became a wrecking ball, a force to be reckoned with off the edge over there, batting down passes, 
walking guards and tackles into the quarterback's lap. Among all those fun highlights, though, it was a five-yard gain on the first play of the game that really sparked a thought for me. And that's kind of how I generate ideas for different segments in the podcast sometimes. I just immerse myself in Dolphins football and see what my brain comes up with. And it was this innocuous-looking outside run where Raheem Mostert is tackled by Jerome Baker for five yards. Like, first and ten, first play of the game, five-yard gain. Usually fans are still finding their seats. The broadcast crew is going to roll through the offensive and defensive lineup graphics on the screen, talk about both teams. No one really cares about that first play, it seems like, most of the time, especially when it's just a regular three, four, five-yard run. But it was the role that Jerome Baker was fulfilling on that play that's it's got me thinking because he was the overhang linebacker down off the weak side of the formation, and the Niners motion over their tight end, who throws a dummy block at Jerome Baker before he climbs up to the second level, and the fullback, Kyle Juszczyk, comes in and tries to seal Baker off the edge. What does Baker do? He smacks him, stacks him, sheds him, and gets to the ball carrier before he gets through that C-gap off the outside. And that was something that wasn't, you know, that wasn't in Jerome Baker's makeup back in, like, for instance, his rookie season back in 2018. But every year, this guy adds something to the tool belt, and it's not all that surprising at age 24, right? Because he's continuing his development. Crazy how that happens in this league with this team. But I think the ability to stand up off the edge, absorb those big poolers, lead blocks, kickout blocks, is an element that would be such a boon for this defense and their personnel, especially when you factor in the improvement we saw from Gink in similar regards on the other side last season. His ability to beat blocks with physicality, opposed to just working around them, has become night and day compared to what it was back at Wisconsin just a couple seasons ago. Speaking of Wisconsin, we know Vince Beagle can serve in that role off the edge. Duke Riley and Sam Egwavon are picture-perfect sub-package linebackers that can play in that role in addition to their roles on special teams. And Brennan Scarlett did plenty of that on early downs in Houston. And speaking of Houston, then there's Benardrick McKinney, who can do some Sam work as well. But he also operates highly efficiently between the hash marks, that B-gap to B-gap defender in a classic stack position. A stack linebacker is when your linebacker lines up behind one of the defensive linemen, so, he's not, so he is covered up by one of your defensive linemen. So what did I just give you? Seven players that can all operate in different capacities, most of them capable of doing at least two different roles, if not three or four, It just continues this theme of being able to adapt week to week based upon your opponent. You want to run this wide zone offense like the one this defense completely shut down back in week five, back in October, and turned over four times? Great. We have the speed off the edge and no problem sacrificing size because the origin of that outside zone of that stretch run game is athletic linemen. So we match the athleticism there with our own athleticism. And we can sustain the loss in density at that position because of the big defensive lineman on the roster who can kick outside and play the five technique like a 300-pound Zach Sealer or a 310-pound Christian Wilkins. You want to go 21 personnel and bang on early downs? Perfect. We'll drop Bernardrick McKinney and Landon Roberts in the lineup. Both those guys are guns for hire who shoot gaps for a living. I've talked about this until I was blue in the face, but we have so many different looks and fronts we can call upon. I joked about it with Ben Fennell on the on the Wednesday podcast about how misguided it is to talk about 3-4 four, and 4-3 four, defenses. Those are sub-packages. Every package is a sub-package because you're going to be in your 2-2, two, two, your 2-3, two, your 2-4, your 3-3 three, three front, whatever it might be. 
this Dolphins defense and structure has so many nuanced packages that allow Flores and Boyer to call upon their frequent usage of extra defensive backs. That's that's the real crux to it all. The seventh highest rate of six or more defensive backs on the field in the National Football League last season. And I think they got even more flexible up front to further reinforce that philosophy. So that's my take right there on Jerome Baker making a five-yard stop on a tackle on the first play back in week five. Let's go ahead and fast forward back to the now and get to your questions via the Twitter mailbag. We used to do this on Lockdown Dolphins every single week. I want to do it more here on the Drive Time Podcast. Get your guys' takes and opinions and thoughts on the podcast. I put out the call on Twitter for the questions for the mailbag. You guys respond with your questions. You get a shout out here on the podcast and your question answered. If I select it, we had about 60 questions. Could not get to them all, but continue to ask me questions and eventually we'll get to them here on the Drive Time Podcast. And the best way to ensure that you do get your question answered, go ahead and put a question in the reviews on Apple Podcast. I'll read all of those questions and answer them here on the podcast. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast and all that fun stuff. So let's go ahead and kick this thing off here. And the first question comes in from at Kane on Twitter. The defense was the Finn strong point last season with some turnover this year. Do you think they can replicate that success? In a word, yes. I look at the elements that made this defense as stingy and as dangerous as it was in 2020, and they're all still here. Lockdown cover corners who posted a combined 14 interceptions and forced fumbles, veteran versatile safeties who can come down and cover, they communicate well and limit big plays, Emmanuel Ogba and the impact he's had off the edge of the defense, and then just the parts to execute the many fronts and different rush schemes of this defense. You consider Jerome Baker's versatility, the development and strides of Andrew Van Ginkle last year, those three defensive linemen who all play all over the formation and gave you quality reps against both the run and the pass. And then the new addition sprinkled in with Adam Butler and the interior pass rush he brings. The hard-nosed run defending of Bernardrick McKinney. The sticky slot cover skills from Justin Coleman. Brennan Scarlett, who plays just about every position in the front seven. And Duke Riley and the cover skills he showed in Philadelphia. It's always tough to replicate dominant defense year in and year out. But I like Miami's chances to get that done. And there are plenty of draft questions in this mailbag, obviously. So if you hear a question that sounds like yours, we're not going to replicate that and answer it here on the podcast. Or if we talked about it earlier in the podcast, we'll go ahead and skip over it as well. But here's a question from Kevin Garrard at Kevin Garrard 13 on Twitter. He asks, Edge or running back at pick 18? Who is your pick at both positions if they go there at 18? Well, I think that trio of running backs... Between Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, Javante Williams, I think all three of those guys are first-round talents. I think they're all bell cows that can give you three downs, uh, you know, can be three down backs and play the entire game basically for you. I think that they all feature elements of the reason why you would take a running back in that first round. Now, I'm kind of hard-pressed between Najee and Javante because I think Javante at 220 pounds at 20 years old with, you know, so much less wear and tear on the tires. I think the upside might be higher, but getting Najee Harris, man, you know exactly what you're going to get. Production, inside running, physical short yardage guy that can also break the big runs, has the athletic ability, also the familiarity there with your quarterback. So I have a tough time between those two. They're really 1A, 1B. 
I'll go ahead and go with Najee with the 1A distinction and Javante the 1B. Now, as far as edges go, to me, Jalen Phillips is the best edge in this class, and he fits what you might do here at 260 pounds with the ability to get around the edge, but I think he's long gone by that point. I think Quiddy Pay makes some sense there as well, and I'm also a very, very big fan of Boogie Basham out of Wake Forest. I see him ranked routinely in the low like outside the top 50 of this draft but I couldn't disagree with that more kind of my Antoine Winfield from last year I had him as a top 20 pick and he winds up going in the second round that's kind of boogie bashing to me I think he belongs in that first round so I would put him in that conversation even though the rest of the draft world probably doesn't see it that way with boogie basham and a quick follow-up here from Chris Lorando at extortion on Twitter he's asked me basically Where's the sweet spot for drafting a running back in that first round? He says 18 is a little bit rich. He'd feel more comfortable in 2025 range. Of course, if you can trade down and get your guy, certainly do it. But I think the Jets at pick 23 and then the Jets again at 33 or 34 rather are probably very likely to get a running back in one of those two spots if they can get one of these three guys. So you play with fire when you do that a little bit. I think Miami's calculated risk to do that from three to six was had some backing behind it, right? You you know those quarterbacks are going to go early, and then the Bengals with Sewell and Chase seems pretty obvious there as well. So you put yourself in a position where you can still get one of the top players at that skill spot, but doing it this late in the draft, it's kind of a, a gamble. So if you want that player there at that pick, you think he's worth, you know, if you think he's worth 23, just take him at 18 because I think the, the term reach is so overused and so overrated that if you pick a good football player, nobody cares where he went in the draft. This next question here from Kyle the Commish. Which linebacker in the first two rounds do you feel best fits our team? I like Baron Browning out of Ohio State as much almost as Jamin Davis out of Kentucky. Now, Davis is the kind of more off-ball linebacker, and so that's why I think maybe I'll go more towards Baron Browning because he can come down, play that edge position, and give you give you strength and size off the edge, set the edge in the running game, but also the, the jumping metrics he showed at Ohio State's Pro Day. I think that he can really give you some more explosion by way of blitzing, pass rushing, and coverage, and all that fun stuff too. So give me Baron Browning out of Ohio State, who also worked with Coach Campanelli and this Dolphins coaching staff at the Senior Bowl down in Mobile. Next question here from Gabe Genovese at GabeGino13 on Twitter. You probably have several, but do you have a specific I made it moment, a time where it hit you that you're employed by the team we're all obsessed with? Yeah, like you mentioned, there are several. The first one would be the Dan Marino photo that I put back on Twitter a while back. Getting a chance to meet Dan, I mean, that's self-explanatory. I don't got to tell you guys how crazy that was. But also just being in the building around the players, even with social distancing and the contact tracing and staying away from everybody, you still could see him across the hallway, see him on the other side of the kitchen, that sort of thing. So, for instance, my favorite story to tell is when I would go into the kitchen right around two or three o'clock most days and get my bang because I usually did podcasting in the morning and I wrote in the afternoon and the bang energy drink is my, you know, stay awake post-lunch writing material drink that I require. And so I'm also very weird about drinks. I like my drinks as cold as they can be. Like I'll put soda or an energy drink or anything in the freezer until it gets like almost slushy, but you don't want it to get slushy right before it gets slushy. That's when you pull it out. And then you have yourself an ice cold beverage. I did that with the Diet Pepsi they provide there at the facility, but I had to bring my own bangs, obviously. So I popped both those things in the freezer. And every once in a while, I'd go in there and I would see Tua and Fitz were together. They were always together. And Tua was always making coffee and Fitz is always just kind of hanging back and, and commenting on different things going on in the room, which this time was me. So I enter the room with a, a Diet Pepsi and a bang in either hand. And Fitz looks at me and I, I, he gets that look in his eye like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him about this. 
and he's like, so "What do you got there? Is that a is that an energy drink or and a, and a Pepsi? What do you what's going on with that?" And I just thought to myself, like, better come up with something good here. So I told him, you know, Fitz, you don't get this physique you're looking at before you today without pounding bang energy drink. And he thought that was hilarious. And I just said, you know, I've been Travis Wingfield. That's my time. You all have a good night. Tip your bartenders and waitresses and get the hell out of there. So that was kind of a cool, surreal moment. Uh, Walking by the practice field on Tuesdays when the players were off, I, I would have to walk from my office over to the studio to record. So I frequently made this walk basically across the entire campus and every Tuesday right around 10 o'clock there would be guys day off right players day off there was always guys out there working I remember seeing Miles Gaskin out there all the time I thought that was cool to see but after we beat the Rams you know Tua's first start I saw Tua going out there with somebody I didn't recognize who it was but he was going out the his first day off after starting and getting the first W he was out there working on that Tuesday and I thought that was just cool to see, you know, young men out there taking taking control of their careers and taking control of their futures here in the NFL by putting as much work as they can, especially your young quarterback who just got his first career win. So those are a few cool moments. Next question here from at Cordesurik7. I, I probably butchered that. I'm sorry. What if you grew up in South Florida, diehard Dolphin fan, but you're raising kids in the D.C. area, so they are WFT fans? He has to convert his own children, he says, or disown their lack of aqua and orange blood. Well, I, I think that when you're young, you get, you're, you're a free agent until you're, let's say, 13 years old, maybe, maybe even a little bit older, 16 years old. You're a free agent because I had jerseys of every single player I liked in my closet. That was always on my, on my Christmas wish list. I had Ricky Williams for the Saints. I had Sean Alexander for the Seahawks, Sean Springs for the Seahawks. I had Charles Woodson for the Raiders. Like I was, I was a connoisseur of all things football and the Dolphins just kind of were the team that I was into at that time. And then, you know, you get more obsessed with the game itself and you become more researched and nuanced and then you just, all right, that's my team. So I think it has to happen naturally. I've tried to force myself into fandom. Like the NBA is a great example. I haven't been a fan of the NBA since 2008 when the Sonics left. Like I'm done as a fan. But I find my I've tried to insert myself as a Heat fan, and I've always liked the Heat because of Dwayne Wade. But I try to insert myself, and you just cannot manufacture to me the emotion and the level of of care as you do from a team you truly care about. But I find myself maybe it's maybe repetitions make taking a hold because I find myself being more and more intrigued by the Miami Heat and watching more of their games. So maybe it does work, but I think it has to happen naturally. Give them time to explore and be free agents. And uh, yeah, Caroline's going to be a Dolphins fan though. Go ahead and put that note there at the very end. Next question here. What has been, or sorry, from at Kobo Nation. What has been your favorite thing about working for the Miami Dolphins? And a bonus question, what has been the most shocking slash unexpected? Well, the most shocking unexpected was my whole rookie year basically being a trial COVID-based season where, I mean, everything was not what I thought it was going to be. I went to the combine. It was my first assignment here with the team. And I was over the moon excited about how cool that was. And then basically life changed for the past year with COVID. So the fact that couldn't be, you know, as in the locker room, couldn't really develop those impersonal relationships because you just weren't around the guys as much. That was the the most shocking, unexpected part that I just didn't like as much. Now, my favorite part is the converse of that, the relationships you do develop. Because, for instance, Isaiah Ford, we did a, a story on Isaiah Ford last summer, and it was about his foundation. We wound up like sharing DMs because I was tweeting out his foundation, and we became buddies over that. And we would talk every now and then. You know, he'd get his massages on two, on his player day off, and I would be back in the podcast studio, and we'd, we'd meet and talk and just catch up. And so... Developing those relationships like Shaq Lawson, he and I bonded over the loss of our parents on the podcast we did a while back. 
the Fitzpatrick in the kitchen story. Uh, you know, asking Tua a question at his first presser as a starting quarterback and having him say, that's a great question. Just these little relationships you build up and getting to know the guys. Like when Adam Butler on his free agent uh, interview, we, he said he was a country boy. So I said, oh yeah, I know Zach Sealer's farm. Like That's where you got to go. And like getting to know Zach and getting to know his dad, Randy Sealer. Just all the relationships you develop they're unmatched and it's it's really beyond cool to be able to be in this position to have those happen so that's a couple of personal occurrences and I love these kind of off the football brand questions here talking more I think it gives the the podcast a little more depth and speaking of that how about this question here from my first ever podcast co-host and Kevin Dern the old finalysis podcast back in the perfectville days at Kevin MD4 does Slim Reaper stick if Miami drafts Devontae Smith I think it has to. That's one of the best nicknames that I've ever heard of. I, I'm on the like nicknames died a while back train when they started giving everybody the same nickname, the first letter of your first name and the first three letters of your last name, like A-Rod. That's not a nickname. That's just your name abbreviated. So Slim Reaper is one of the all-time great nicknames. I hope it sticks wherever he goes. And then also Kevin asked Dad Live question, which children's show do you secretly enjoy watching? I've always been a SpongeBob fan. Uh, Caroline's not there yet. She watches the show Baby Bus, and when you put it on and they scream Baby Bus in the beginning, she loses her collective you-know-what. You and so watching her react to that, to me, that's that's the best part of the whole experience. Next question here from at AKFinFan. If we're unable to address one position via the draft, which one is it, and how do we fill that gap? To me, I look at the needs as like running back, receiver, obviously, or possibly tight end if you want to call Kyle Pitts a tight end. Um, receiver depth, edge help, offensive line investment, development safety, and Sam linebacker. So I think of those last three positions there, the offensive line, safety, and linebacker, look at the position groups as a whole and where do they start to get thin? Typically offensive line gets pretty thin after the beginning of day two. You really don't find, if you look across the league, the, the day three of the draft is not producing tons of like starting quality offensive line. So I think that if you don't do it early, maybe you don't because you have so many young guys that are still developing on your roster. Maybe that's the one that gets shortchanged. And the way you fill the gap is just continuing to develop, develop your own guys. Like a Michael Dieter, for instance, continuing his work. Adam Pankey becoming a possible swing tackle for you. Jesse Davis's role expanding upon what it might be. So I think offensive line might be my pick for that one. Next question from at Scott F. Kenward. What do you hear about Durval Neto? Any chance this guy ever sees the field? Honestly, I only see him in training camp because that's when he is on the field working. Also in practice, when we get a chance to get out there and watch him practice. But I just don't have a complete answer for you, Scott. I know that he's part of the developmental program. So he's had those two years of practice squad exemption or roster exemption there. So we'll see if he's back this year working in training camp and what he might be able to do. But I know he's big, he's thick, he's strong, and he's super athletic. Next question here from at abello1257. How's dad life been treating you? My little girl's about to turn three and I can't take it. Yeah, that last part you mentioned there about how quickly they grow up. I was supposed to be in South Florida from when I moved in August down forever. Like I wasn't supposed to come home besides, you know, breaks and holidays and time off and stuff like that. But because of the the NFL's change in COVID protocols, I wasn't allowed to be back in the building. So I got to come home and I've, I've been home since Christmas and seeing the development she's taken in that time, like I didn't know what I didn't know in terms of what I was going to miss in her development. And I'm really glad that it worked out this way because I, I wouldn't have been happy if I missed this stuff. And that was our own, that was like my wife and I's decision for a financial reasoning and for health reasons to not go down there together as a family last year. But I'm glad that it worked out this way because seeing her grow, like 
every day she learns something new. Like she's waving at us now. She obviously learned how to walk, as you guys see on Twitter the last couple of weeks. Every every day she just like progresses so much, and I'm I'm so glad that I'm not missing that. So I'm I definitely will miss my baby when she grows up and becomes you know not a baby and and probably hates me at that point. But yeah, man, it's it's been going great, better than I ever thought it could have been. It's it's definitely life changing. And then Adrian also asks about which pass catcher best fits our remaining needs, and do you potentially see us trading down again from number six? I answered those questions in the first segment, Adrian, so I'm sure you heard that already, but I definitely appreciate the question. Next question here from at SPF underscore rip. Do you see Skura as a starter, or do you think someone will be brought in to compete for center? I think competition's always going to be the focal point on this roster, and there's a couple of guys in this draft, Creed Humphrey and, and Landon Dickerson, that I think are darn good centers, and even some more guys beyond that that could give you competition at that spot too. But Skura can play both guard positions. He was a guard before he played center. But just going back over his 2019 and even some of his 2020 tape, I watched the Steelers game, and I had a, a clip where he's He's kicking out and blocking TJ Watt. He's moving Stephon to it in the in the running game. He's holding up in pass protection and anchoring against Cameron Hayward. Like I thought his tape was really good, so I'm impressed by what I've seen. Obviously, the snapping thing occurred last year in that rainy game in New England, and you have to get that sorted out. But I think this guy's an above-average starter for sure, if not better, when he's healthy and right and good to go on the field. Came back from that that devastating knee injury in 2019 to be back there last season. So I think you could see more of his 2019 form this year. And I thought that was some damn good tape for Matt Skura. All right, I'll go ahead and wrap up the mailbag right there. Appreciate all your guys' questions. Those were great to get to, and there's not enough time to get to all 55 that we had in here. But I'm going to keep doing more mailbags here on the podcast. So keep asking me the questions, and we'll get to you guys eventually if you did not get your question answered today. Let's go ahead and move on here now to a couple of uh, pro days I wanted to take a look at in this week. LSU and Florida with Jamar Chase, Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Toney. And all the stud athletes those two schools have to offer. And there's been, I mean, multiple pro days going off every single day now and and multiple pro days for each school as well in the absence of the combine testing periods. And Kyle Pitts and Jamar Chase were both out there for their pro days on Wednesday. And my goodness. And you talk about the way the narrative kind of shifts around certain pro days. I mean, I saw... Earlier in the week, Zach Wilson's pro day made him like the number one quarterback prospect in so many people's eyes. And then Justin Fields goes out and works out. And now he is all of a sudden, everybody forgetting about Trevor Lawrence, the number one presumed pick who the Jaguars already have said they're going to pick number one. So pro day season does have this inherent recency bias kind of built into it right now. And that's kind of the way football works in general. What have you seen lately that's going to be the most prevalent in your mind? So these pro days are kind of taking over, but... Kyle Pitts and Jamar Chase both put on a show at their Wednesday Pro Days, and Kyle Pitts in particular, at almost 6'5", almost 6'6", he's 6'5 and 5'8", 248 pounds, 10 10.5-inch hands, and then an 83-and-3-8-inch wingspan, the largest by over a half-inch tight end wingspan in the history of the National Football League. He blazed a 4.44 40-yard dash. And if you want to look at a comparison here, Calvin Johnson, the Hall of Fame receiver of the Lions, six foot five, two hundred and thirty-nine pounds, eighty-two inch wingspan, four three five forty. So Kyle Pitts is taller than Calvin Johnson. He's six pounds heavier, has a larger wingspan, and ran just a tenth of a second slower in the forty-yard dash. And I talked about this on Twitter on Wednesday how. His size and athletic profile combination makes him just almost uncoverable inside when you have a two-way go. 
What's a two-way go? You can break inside, you can break outside. And if you want to go ahead and play outside leverage, where you're going to go ahead and give him the inside lane, he's just going to go ahead and stack you and use that wingspan and length because you can't get over the top of him. You want to play outside leverage and force him to go towards the outside? Well, that whip route in the video I shared on Twitter where he puts his foot in the ground and turns that thing around, he's going to leave you in the lurch just standing there on your heels without being able to explode out of your stance because you don't know which direction he's going. So I think about the way Kyle Pitts can, can really enhance this offense and influence the defense. I think it's very rare. I think he's very special. I think, to me, the best player in the entire draft. And then Jamar Chase went out and did some stupid stuff himself, the LSU receiver. And that's kind of the debate right now you're going to see among draft pundits. Who did Miami go up to number six to draft? It has to be one of these two guys, right? Maybe. We'll see. It could be. There's also Devontae Smith and Jalen Waller, both to me, top of the line level prospects in this class, first round draft prospects. But I think that when you look at the pass catching options they might have there at number six, you have to feel good about where they are in that position. And then there was Jamar Chase's workout, who was also ridiculous in its own right. In the last 20 years, receivers that had over a 41-inch uh, vertical jump, a broad jump over 11 feet, ran a sub 4 5 40, and put up at least 20 reps on the bench, Jamar Chase is the only one to ever do that. So this guy's athletically gifted, and where he really excels to me is when he gets in that second level, when he makes the move that forces the defensive back to make a decision about coming up and covering him in the short area, his acceleration off that point to get vertical and then to attack the football, that's where he really shines. So these two guys blowing up the workout, you know, blowing up the pro day session of the draft process or the draft season, to me, only bodes well for Miami because now you're in a spot where that pick might have been even more valuable after the pro days had gone off when Miami traded back up to number six. The key is going to be that fourth pick with the Falcons. If that's a quarterback, you're going to get a crack at one of these two guys at least. So we'll see how that works. We'll see what the Dolphins want to do. I can't wait. We have another month here to go before the draft comes along. We're going to get guests here on the podcast, guys that have covered Florida, Alabama, and LSU, some big-time national scouts as well, and talk about all this stuff here in the next month on the Drive Time Podcast. As for my time today, it is my two-year wedding anniversary with my wife. I'm going to go ahead and surprise her and take her out to dinner. Last year, we went and got takeout and ate in the car because of COVID. This year, we're going to have a chance to go to our First, the restaurant we had our first date in and have dinner there in a limited capacity with masks and all that fun stuff. So looking forward to that. Hope you guys all enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the Final Four. Enjoy the National Championship. Gonzaga is going to absolutely roll as they have all tournament. And we'll check back in with you guys on Monday. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe, rate, review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. That really helps the podcast grow and get out to more Dolphins fans. So if you haven't done that, please go ahead and leave us a five-star rating. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible podcast. Check out our YouTube channel. We're going to be putting a lot more content on the YouTube channel, including the video interviews with each of our free agents. We'll do that again in draft season with all the draft picks as well. So plenty of stuff coming your way. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up.